Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rain last night and for the cool morning as we woke up. We thank you, Father, as we came in to meet again this morning that we had the facility that you've been so gracious to provide. We have the men and women who give their time and effort to organize and help in producing this service. Thank you, Father, that you have gifted so many and given them a heart to serve in so many ways. But all of it, Father, so that as we gather, we would give you glory and put you at the center of our attention and in the center of our hearts where you belong. So, Father, for all the activity, for all our effort, for all the excitement that we bring into this moment each Sunday, I pray, Father, we would remember the words from Scripture to be still and to remember that you are Lord. And to be still, Father, in that we would not bring cares and concerns in here with us. We would not bring worry and doubt. We would not bring needs, but rather, Father, putting those aside and trusting in your will to provide as you see fit. We bring only our attention, Father, and our desire to know your truth. Let your Holy Spirit speak through me, Father, and into the hearts of those who listen. Let your word reign above all else. Let truth reign, Father. And in the things we hear and in the the messages placed on our heart, Father, I pray we would have the courage and the conviction to step out and to obey and to do your will, not merely to hear your words. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in this body and continue to do. And may it all be to your glory. As we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. Well, Luke chapter 12. Uh, Open your Bibles with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's uh, Bibles in the back of the room. Uh, There, for your benefit, feel free to to jump up if you need to and grab one. Uh, We'll be studying verse by verse. Last week, we transitioned, if you remember, out of an extended discussion on how Jesus had been denied by the Pharisees, how he had been rejected by the nation of Israel, and how that rejection was going to play out in their damnation. But we also, leaving that last week, went into a new discussion on the dangers of placing wealth above God's will, of being rich in our wealth, not rich toward God, and of worrying. Maybe that's the title, maybe that's the key theme, of worry. Worrying about money, worrying about our needs, and in the worrying process, being distracted away from the work of service that God has prepared for us. And that may be the best way to sum up where we're going and where we've been already. In the verses we studied last week, uh, we saw Jesus telling the disciples that when you focus on how much money you make in your life, when that becomes your reason for life, when that is your primary motivation in your day, then essentially you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time, eternally speaking. Because everything that you're working for, all those needs that you feel that you're trying to meet, are needs God has said He'll already provide for. Though it may not be to the extent we would desire, that's irrelevant. It would be to the extent God desires we would be provided. But meanwhile, you're seeking that wealth. Our our work in effort to build wealth accomplishes nothing meaningful because none of it's going to go with us anyway. None of it's going to last after this life. So really, what good was that work? There's an old phrase we've all used or heard at some point, I'm sure, the phrase that goes, you can't take it with you. We've heard it. We've probably even used it. We typically trot that phrase out whenever we meet somebody who would rather store up their wealth in this life than put it to any use. You know, the kind of person who saves, 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 dies, has all their money in their saving account. And you turn to that person and you say, well, you can't take it with you. Meaning, what's the point in the storing? What's the point in the accumulation? What's the point in the having if it can't go with you? You know, what, what's implied by that statement is that there is something after this life. 
And it's in that afterlife, it's in that next life that things really matter because it's in that left, next life we find ourselves in an eternal state compared to this state we're in now, which won't last. So it, it basically recognizes the folly of investing all your time for something in the here and now that can't last rather than doing the opposite, which is considering what will last, what is eternal, and investing time in building that up. Ecclesiastes in five, chapter 5 says it this way, 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Solomon calls hoarding riches a grievous evil. A grievous evil. Reminds me of a parable, or a, I guess you'd say a, a fable. Aesop, you remember Aesop, when was the last time you read an Aesop fable? An Aesop fable, this is one that you may not have heard, but it's, it's very apropos. And I don't read fables in here very often, as you know, but this one just struck me as being too good to pass up. There's a miser who sold all that he had and bought a lump of gold, which he buried in a hole in the ground by the side of an old wall and went to look at daily. One of his workmen observed his frequent visits to the spot and decided to watch his movements. He soon discovered the secret of the hidden treasure and digging down came to the lump of gold and stole it. The miser on his next visit found the hole empty and began to tear his hair and to make loud lamentations. A neighbor, seeing him overcome with grief and learning the cause, said, Pray do not grieve. But go and take a stone and place it in the hole and fancy that the gold is still lying there. It will do you quite the same service for when the gold was there, you had it not, as you did not make the slightest use of it. Isn't that interesting? And how often would you look at perhaps what you do and what I do in our own accumulation and storing of wealth, our measuring of it, our checking of our bank account balances on a regular basis, our 401ks and so on. And are we not at risk of making that same mistake? You remember the story Jesus told last week, the man who stored up in barns all his treasure, and then the day he thought he had his life together, had everything he needed, he was all set for retirement. God said, well, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. Last week, Jesus said, the man who stores up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Now, let me ask you this, because I, as we go back into the verses today, beginning with chapter 12, verse 31, I want you to consider something. When I read those verses from last week, when I studied Luke last week, the thought that crept into my mind, and I'm willing to bet it was creeping into your mind too, was that, yeah, those rich people, they're the problem. You know, rich people. Rich people are the problem. If they only realized the mistake they were making being so rich, I'm glad I'm not one of them. How much money do you need to be storing up to be considered not rich toward God? How many barns do you need to have? What is the threshold before you and I are guilty of doing what the man with all the wealth was doing in that parable from last week? If we assume, as most people do, that a rich person is always someone with more money than we have, there's always someone richer, right? If we assume that, then we need to be careful because there weren't many alive in Jesus' day who were as rich as any one of us is here today. In fact, the poorest person in this room is probably richer than 90% of the Earth's population today. 
So while it may be true that God didn't have us in mind when he spoke those words, are you willing to bet on that? I'm not. Not speaking for myself, I'm not. So perhaps like this morning as we read Jesus' words again, we have to understand that he's putting the disciples on edge in the same way that I'm trying to help you perhaps appreciate the truth as well, that this is really about all of us. Jesus in Luke 12:31 said, Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. That's where we left off last week. Seeking his kingdom. But isn't that what I'm doing, right? Isn't that what I'm doing? Isn't that what we're all doing? Isn't that in the back of our minds as we hear those verses? That was in the minds of the disciples. Think about the disciples. They know they're following someone special. Even if they're not fully aware of whether he's the Messiah or not, they know they're following someone special. They think they're seeking the kingdom of God. What better way to do it than to walk away from your fishing boat and to follow this rabbi? And so they hear Jesus say, Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. And they understood what kingdom meant, by the way. In the context of the Jewish tradition and of the Jewish teaching, the kingdom of God is the messianic kingdom. The Messiah coming and reigning on earth for a thousand years. That kingdom they want to be a part of because they know to not be a part of it means to be in hell. And so they hear the words, seek his kingdom, all these things will be added to you. And then immediately in their mind they think, wait a minute, that's what I'm doing. I'm seeking your kingdom, Jesus. I'm right here with you. You're telling me I'm not? Jesus says, seek the kingdom and all earthly necessities would come their way by God's hand. But what he wants them to understand is in the seeking of the kingdom, it's not merely that you say, I'm a Christian. It's not merely that you say, I want to see God's will be done. That's certainly a prerequisite. But seeking his kingdom is how we walk out that faith. The choices we make every day. Jesus knew their concerns, and I want you to look at where he goes next. He knew that their concern was that they would somehow miss the kingdom. That what he was talking about here was whether you were in or out. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the measure of whether or not we're seeking his kingdom. Look what he says in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this. That if the head of the house had, not, had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. You see what Jesus is doing here? He moves immediately out of verse 31 saying, Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And, proceed, and then follows that by saying, Do not be afraid, for the Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. And it almost seems, well, why am I having to seek it then? Because he's talking about two different issues. He says, on the one hand, have no doubt. The Father has chosen to grant them the kingdom of God. They are given faith. They are a child of God. They are now in the kingdom effectively, though they haven't seen it appear physically. But that's not the question. The question isn't, how do I obtain salvation? Because we don't do that in our own work anyway. The issue here is, how do I attain what God wants me to attain now that I am saved? The point here is not how to obtain salvation. The point is, having been saved, 
how are we spending our time while we await the kingdom? What are we doing with what he's given us? If the kingdom is already assured as it is, then Jesus then moves on to challenge them in the way he intended them to understand his words. What he follows with next is an elaboration, an explanation of what he meant when he said, seek the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. He says, for example, sell your possessions and give your wealth to charity. Now, from the context, it's obvious that he's not demanding that they abstain from owning anything. Or that we, for example, would own nothing as a prerequisite to pleasing God. That is clear from the context. Rather, he says, do not be owned by what you have. The point here is that you can't be distracted so much so by what you own or by the pursuit of something that you're going to be distracted from spending your time on the things God wants you to spend your time on. It would be far better, in fact, if you're that kind of person, to put aside all that wealth, to put aside the pursuit of wealth, if that's what it takes, so that your mind is freed to listen to God and to follow His will. That's what his point here is. We turn our attention in the next verse, he says, to a different kind of treasure. Now, this treasure we're going to talk about here is one that some people, I think, get a little confused about, or at least have a lot of questions about, and I don't know of a clearer place in Scripture to take you to explain what Christ expects us to have as our goal. You know, we all understand that we have to work for what we want, right? In fact, as a child, if you've been brought up properly, you were taught at an early age that children have to earn the things they want. If you just hand them everything they want, what kind of child do you end up with? A child who believes everything they want should be theirs. A child who's spoiled, a child that has sort of an entitlement view of the world. What I want, I get because I want. A child that understands you have to work for what you want and earn what you want will have an attitude throughout life that says, I have to be willing to invest effort to gain what I need or to gain what I want. They understand that relationship. I'm not trying to change that, neither is Jesus here. We're not changing the equation of work for what you want. In fact, Jesus is reinforcing that principle here. He's reinforcing the principle. He says, make for yourselves, he says to the disciples, a money belt that will not wear out. The word for make here in the Greek, po-i-o, p-o-i-e-o, it means to accomplish, it means to produce, it means to bring forth. So when he says make a money belt, he means effort, energy, goals, setting things up so that you can achieve something you desire. He's talking about a process of earning. The difference here is not in the process. The difference here is in the goal or the object. Before faith came for each of us, it made sense to us to spend all our days we have alive in this world earning earthly wealth. That's what our parents did. That's what our grandparents did. That's what they told us to do. That's why we went to school. That's why we go to college. That's why we care about what kind of our resume looks like. That's why we care about who our employer is. I mean, our life is centered around obtaining earthly wealth. And as an unbeliever, that makes perfect sense. Because as an unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. As an unbeliever, what comes next is worse than what you have here. As a believer, it's exactly the opposite. So now as a believer, spending a lot of time investing in this world and in building up wealth in this world is folly. It's a waste of time. It's not that Jesus wants us to stop working. What he wants us to do is change our goal. Our focus should be on earning treasure in an everlasting kingdom, not in a temporary fallen world. And he says, for where our treasure is, there our hearts are also. 
Those who serve their earthly desires and do not have a heart to serve and please God are going to be serving themselves in a way that they're only going to one day later realize was a waste of time. Because the scripture says you cannot serve God and wealth at the same time. Pick which one you will serve. What does he mean by treasure? Well, Paul talks about it at several points in his letters, but I'll sum it up for you this way. Jesus, more often than not, describes what we earn and what we should seek after in the, in the kingdom to come in terms of responsibility. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't also have some material uh, a sense to it. I don't know enough to tell you for certain that it won't also equate in some way to something tangible. You've often heard about people talking about their home in heaven. You know, the Billy Graham house will be, you know, the mansion on the corner and you and I will be on a shack somewhere down below. But if that's true, and it might be, it's simply going to be another way to represent the work we did here and now. But Christ, more often than not, talks about it as responsibility. I think that sometimes catches people off guard because there's a certain sense of, well, I don't care about that. You know, last thing I want to do is be in management, you know. I'll leave that to somebody else in the kingdom. I'll just be happy to be there. That sentiment is understandable, but the fact is, he says, seek after it. He says, desire it. He says that should be our goal. Serving with him in a sense of greater responsibility should be our goal, he says. And then to reinforce that point, look at where he goes next in the verses I've already read. He uses a familiar relationship in this remarkable parable, probably the clearest teaching that I know of in Scripture on the relationship between our opportunities to serve here and our expectations for service in the kingdom to come. The relationship he uses is between a master and a slave. That's a common one. And in most cases where where any parable is taught with masters and slaves, the master is Christ, and slaves are typically believers. In fact, you can see in 1 Corinthians 7.22, Paul actually uses the term slave to Christ to refer to a believer. So it's not unusual for us to be called slaves to our Lord. It is often the case, though, in these parables that there is at least one person, one character in the parable, a slave, who is actually an unbeliever. A person pretending to be a Christian. That's why they're given the title slave. But in fact, they are not a Christian. They would be comparable to what we talked about when we went through the parable of the sower and the seed. Remember we said there was four conditions there? Condition two, remember? Condition two was the unbeliever who looks like a Christian. And that's the kind of slave we'd be looking for in this parable. So keep your eye out for the slave who is actually an unbeliever. So in this parable, we have the master. He's left his house. We're told he went to attend a wedding feast. The mention of a wedding feast here is very significant for at least two reasons. First, it's just a useful device in the parable. If you know the Jewish wedding ceremony, if you remember, we've talked about that in here in the past. A wedding feast could last quite a while, could last a week or longer, And when somebody departed to go to a wedding feast, it wasn't often known when they would return. There's an uncertainty about whether or not that person was going to come back in six days, seven days, eight days. What hour of the day was unclear. The point being that the fact that it's a wedding feast that the master is going to gives us this uncertainty around his return. So that's the first reason that that's part of the parable. The second reason or the second significant aspect of the parable, including a wedding feast, is the fact that that's a detail often used to describe the church's relationship to their Lord, to our groom, Christ. We are called the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. And this connection, this reference to a wedding feast, gives us some added reason to see this parable as a picture of our relationship with Christ. Christ the master, we the slaves. 
So having said that, let's look at what the parable is teaching us. He introduces the parable by giving us its point up front. He actually gives you the point of the parable in verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. That's his point. Be ready for his return. Be ready for Christ's return. Since we are slaves already, we are already believers, we are already assured of our salvation, what does it mean to be ready? You ever thought about that? You're a believer now. How much more ready can you be? So what does he mean when he says, be ready for Christ's return? Well, the rest of the parable is about explaining what it means to be ready. If you think that in the parables of Jesus going and coming back, and in all the warnings to be ready and to be watchful and to you know, not know the hour of his return, so be ready. If you think that's simply a reference to be a Christian, because if you're not a Christian, when he returns, you're in trouble. Well, that's certainly implied, but that's not the main point. The main point is, as a Christian, what are we doing to be ready? He starts in verse 36. He says, it's going to be like this. It's going to be like the man waiting for his master's return, watchful and ready to open the door. Imagine yourself for a moment as a master over slaves. And, and if, it, if that doesn't ring too true to you, because you've never been in that situation, maybe take it down to parent, parent and child. Imagine yourself, though, as a master. You returned after many days away. What do you hope to find? There's the house. You haven't quite got there yet. You haven't opened the door yet. What do you expect to find when you get there after being gone better than a week? Well, you hope to find the slaves doing what you told them to do while you were gone, right? You hope that they'll be vigilant and attentive to your return. Now, as a parent, you certainly can understand this circumstance, right? I know I can. My wife and I, now that our children are old enough to be left alone, we'll leave them alone for periods of time. And what, is, what do you do? I don't, what I do is this. When I'm walking out the door, I, you know, my wife loves to do this. Here's a list of all the stuff you haven't gotten done today. Get them done while we're gone. The thought being, well, that'll keep them busy and out of trouble. So we give them something to do while they're gone. Now, when we drive into the driveway after being gone a few hours, what's the first thought on our mind? I wonder what they did, actually did, right? Did they just put aside that list and, you know, spend their time kind of going between beating up on each other and playing video games and then beating up on each other and playing video games? You know, you hope not, because trust me, if, if that's exactly what we find, well, there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. But if we come back and we find that the house has been done, you know, the work's been done. They've been diligent, the work's been done, and more than that even, they're kind of expecting our return. Not that I expect them to open the door for me when I walk in, but there isn't a sense of just time goes on without end and they'll never be back. There's a, there's, a up, there's a recognition that they could be back any minute. Let me hurry up and get the last things done before they get there. And, of course, there'd be cause for much celebration if I actually found that one day. So that's, that's the dilemma. That's the distinction. That's the difference that you would expect between a master who has slaves that do the right thing and a master who has slaves that do the wrong thing. The slaves who've been faithful in this way, Jesus says in verse 37, are going to be well rewarded by the pleased master. Now, take note here. Take note of the blessing. The blessing that he says is going to come to them is completely out of reason with anything the disciples would have expected. Did you notice that? We have a slave and I have a master. And what Jesus says is going to happen to the slave that's honorable, the master is going to gird himself for service. That means he's going to take up his long cloak and wrap it up around his waist to get it out of the way to make for easier movement and to keep it clean. That's what a slave would do. And then he's going to start putting the slaves at his table and serving them. Now, in Jesus' day, the thought of this actually taking place would have made them laugh. I, I can't guarantee it, but I'm assuming that as he was saying these things, their mouths were... You know, are you serious? 
Because I think they would have understood the connection here. I think they would have appreciated, even as they heard this parable, that this is something about us and you, isn't it, Jesus? This is something about the kingdom. You've been talking about the kingdom, and now you're telling us this parable. This is probably about us, but you're saying that you're going to serve us? This doesn't make any sense. Even for a good slave, that makes no sense. Because they're thinking of it as a master and a slave. They're not thinking about it as a husband and a wife. Do you understand that the church is the bride of Christ? And as a husband in Scripture, spoken of as the one who should sacrifice himself as Christ did for the church, I fully expect that in the kingdom, though we will be serving him, though he will be the Lord of the, of the world and we will be in his kingdom to serve him, nonetheless, I believe he will treat the church like a husband treats his wife. Honoring her. Serving her. As he did the feet of the disciples. That doesn't change the relationship. It doesn't mean we're somehow his boss. No more than the husband and wife relationship changes simply because the husband cherishes and serves his wife. It's simply an expression of love that is implicit in that relationship. And that's what he's saying will happen for a slave who is honoring to his master. He adds in verse 38, Jesus says, this could happen, by the way, at any hour, second or third watch. Now, in the Jewish society, you had night watches, periods of time you would sit watching, guarding during the night. First watch, 9 p.m. to midnight. Second watch, midnight to 3. Third watch, 3, midnight, or 3 a.m. to sunrise. And even if the master were to return at the unlikely hour of 3 a.m., he's saying, the slaves were going to be ready, taking nothing for granted. Do you imagine that? In real life, can you imagine that? Slaves who would actually take turn at watch in the middle of the night because they don't want to be asleep when their master comes. That's the degree of diligence, of expectation. Not even assuming that night would stop his return. Now, how expectant are we? How are we preparing? How should we prepare? Well, the answer should be obvious, right? We treat every day as if today will either be the day we die or it is the day of the rapture. Not just saying it, not just saying, oh yeah, of course, it could happen anytime. But actually thinking like that all day long. Every decision we make is not made with an expectation that we're going to be here next year or that we're going to live to 60 or even that we're going to be here tomorrow. Every day, the decision we make that day is based on the assumption that he's coming today or tomorrow. Some of you are thinking, well, shoot, I go to Vegas right now. Right? Blow it all in one weekend. No, because there's no heart there to actually serve and glorify God, is there? It's all about the flesh. No, the decisions you'd make would still be the right decisions because they'd be based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. But they would be radically different, wouldn't they? We can't get distracted by the cares of this perishing world because when we do, by design, by nature, we're going to get caught off guard by our Master's return because it's like putting blinders on a horse. We're looking at the world like this. Jesus shows up. Whoa, there he is. Didn't know he was coming today. That's the effect of putting all our interests, all our effort into building up something in this world. It blinds us to the fact that there will be a day that all of this ends. And we'll be embarrassed when he knocks on the door, just like our kids, and he finds us entertaining ourselves and pursuing our own wealth rather than waiting for his return. Just like your kids are when you surprise them coming home early. So what is this work? Now maybe the harder question. All right, Steve, I buy into what you're saying. I see the Scripture's urgency. What is it I'm supposed to do with that, though? Well, for each of us, it's going to be different. Slightly different, at least. Just as we have different walks of life, just as we have different gifts from the Spirit. I can't give you the recipe that says, you know, Joe, Sally, Sue, go out and do this tomorrow, and you are assured that you are doing 
the work of a faithful slave. I have enough hard time figuring that out for myself. I certainly am not in a position to tell you what yours should be. But the unifying quality will always be that we are glorifying God and testifying to His Son in all we do. That will be the one unifying factor for whatever it is God calls us to do. Perhaps the best verse of Scripture that I can offer you to sum up this responsibility is in chapter 12 of Romans. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, we've read these before, I would imagine, many of us. But do you see it now, maybe differently, in the context of our discussion out of Luke? Your body, my body, our very life, is to be a sacrifice to God. What do I mean by sacrifice? You know, that's the hard question. It means denying ourselves. Don't seek what we want. Don't be conformed to this world. Why is Paul telling us that? Is it merely because the, the more we deny ourselves, the harder we make our lives, the more God likes us? Kind of a, you know, like some people whip themselves because they think that makes God happier with them. Is it in that sense that we're supposed to be sacrificing ourselves? No. It's in the sense of what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Conforming doesn't just mean in thought. How many of you thought that? I did for the longest time. I don't conform to this world. I think totally different than the world does. You know, I don't share their values. I don't vote the way they vote. I don't spend my money the way they spend. In fact, I homeschool. I'm so radical, I don't even send my kids to the same schools. So clearly, I'm not conforming to the world. There's only one problem with that way of thinking. The word in the Greek here, when it says conforming, it means literally sharing the same form. Sharing the same form. So, it means pursuing what the world values and patterning your life after the lifestyle the world values. Now, that's a little harder to get out from under, isn't it? It's easy to say, oh, I don't think like the world thinks. Okay, but does your life look like the world? Have you patterned your life after the world? Then how is it you're not conforming to the world? Paul says, rather than doing that, prove in yourself what is the will of God by doing what he wants you to do with your life. By doing with your life what God's will is, you will by necessity stand out because he doesn't agree with what the world agrees with. Your life won't be patterned. And he says, doing so is an act of worship. And it's one that will require sacrifice. Yeah, it won't be easy. Following God's will over our own inevitably will mean making sacrifices in the world. So, first and foremost, sacrificing the world's approval. Secondly, sacrificing its pleasures and its comforts and its riches. Remember what a condition three Christian was out of that parable of the sower and the seed? It's a Christian, no doubt, but it's one that produces no fruit because it's too distracted by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world. There's your dilemma. There's my dilemma. How is it we stay vigilant and watchful and attentive to our master's needs while he's gone without conforming to the world? Well, it is by denying ourselves the cares and the interests of this world and remaining ready because we have nothing in this world we care about. All right, so now as we move back into the Scripture for a few more minutes, I want you to realize how confused the disciples are right about now. Maybe in the same way you are. Not confused in the sense of, I don't understand it. Maybe confused in, have I really got the right expectation? Are you really asking me to do what I think you're asking me to do? So Peter, Peter speaks up, and look at what he says in verse 41. 
Peter says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Uh, I, I chuckled when I, re- when I was studying this myself because I, I like to put in my mind a picture of the moment and try to see it as if I'm standing there. And sometimes the Holy Spirit, I think, helps me see this, the circumstances a little better when I do that. And I'm, I'm seeing the crowd. I'm seeing Jesus speaking to the crowd and the disciples are nearby. And I have to imagine that you know, Peter probably came up to him and whispered because he didn't want to let on that he wasn't kind of following you know, the teaching for the sake of the crowd. You know, Jesus, is this just for us or is this for them too? You know? And Jesus said to sit oh great, okay, now I've got to explain it to you. But Jesus doesn't whisper it back. If, if Peter did that in, at all, Jesus answers outwardly to the whole group. Look what he says in verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward who his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few, or did not know it, sorry and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Well, Peter wanted to know essentially this. He wanted to know, is the teaching you're giving Jesus unique to us, the apostles, or was it meant more generally for all of your followers? Really what he's asking, and I want you to hear this in the way he asked the question. He's really asking a slightly different one than he actually voiced. And we know that because of the way Jesus answered him. What he's really asking is, is the standard the same? This seems like a pretty high standard. So maybe this is just a standard you mean for us, right? You're not necessarily expecting everyone would have to follow this standard, would you, would you Jesus? And so what Jesus then does now as a, as a response is give that distinction. He gives Peter what he's asking. And that is, what is the distinction in terms of God's expectations for someone in leadership versus someone who's not? And he answers that question, but he also includes an important additional detail that applies for the rest of us. Let's study his response. I want you to remember something, though, as we look at it. We're looking here at a description of how leaders in the church will be judged. Not judged in the sense of hell or heaven. We're talking here in the same sense as what he's been talking about all along here. Rewards for service. So let's begin by mentioning that in Jesus' day, it was common for a master to place one slave over other slaves in authority. That was very common. Uh, you know, they typically take the most trustworthy, mature slave of the bunch and give them some added authority to rule over the whole crowd. You remember the last time we saw this in Genesis? One of the most famous examples out of Genesis, right? Joseph. In Genesis 39.2, remember? The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, Potiphar. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, And he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned was put in his charge. 
That's very common. You need somebody in that kind of a role, and you typically want to just take the most trustworthy person in the group. Now, you're still a slave just because you're in charge. But you obviously now have some concern about how well you carry out the duties of that office because being in charge is better than not being in charge, even among slaves. And so it was important to whoever got that position that they be worthy of it. So he compares the roles of the apostles. And now, hear me out. In that moment, who are the leaders? The apostles. There are none other. But I don't think this teaching is unique to them. There's no reason out of the text to assume that only apostles have this burden placed on them. The safer belief, the safer interpretation is that anyone in a position of leadership would have to be held to this same teaching. So leaders in the church are equivalent to this head slave, this head of the household. You notice what the chief responsibility of that slave is? What is the chief responsibility of this head slave? To feed the other slaves. Just as we have read elsewhere, when Peter, near the end of Christ's ministry on the earth, was confronted, Jesus said, do you love me three times? Remember that? And Peter was a bit incensed that he was actually being questioned about whether he loved his Lord or not. Then Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Feed my sheep. His first concern for those in leadership is that they have a heart to bring the Word of God to those under their charge. That is their first, and I would argue, their only charge. Now, they can do other things and be called upon to do other things, certainly. But just like the leaders in Acts, when the time came to settle a dispute between widows, they back off and they say, we're here to teach the Word and to pray. We'll let others take care of those duties. I think that still holds true today. The chief responsibility of a leader in that role, as it's envisioned by this parable, is to feed the other slaves. Now, what's the reward? The reward for the one who does that faithfully will be to gain even greater authority, greater responsibility in the coming kingdom. Now, on the other hand, if on the, the occasion of the master's departure, that one who's been placed in charge acts in an unworthy manner, parable goes on to explain how he beats the other slaves, and particularly the fact that he beats both men and women. That would have been a very damning charge to make against somebody in charge. He never beat a woman. He eats. He gets drunk. In other words, it's a complete abuse of power, reckless disregard for his responsibility. So here's the scenario. Someone who knows they have the responsibility, who's been handed the responsibility, and they show absolutely no regard for it. In fact, they abuse their power. When the master returns, that, that head slave will experience a fate equal to unbelievers. Now, what do we take of that? What do we make of that? A place assigned with the unbelievers, we're told. The only safe assumption, the only fair interpretation is he's an unbeliever. The only fair way to interpret it is, and here we go with that one example I mentioned of a slave in the context of a parable who's actually an imposter, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Peter, in fact, I think, said in the last days there will be those who will come in, false teachers, who are not seeking after God, but seeking after their own lusts. And they deceive many with their false teaching. They, I would argue, are a perfect, perfect example of one of these people. The slave doesn't believe the master will ever return. Think about that. If you believe the master is going to return, would you beat the other slaves? One of the best things that keeps my son or my daughter from hitting the other is the fact that they know I'm going to come home. Right? That's a deterrent. If they were to ever beat up on one another, it's only a matter of time before they're going to get what they deserve because I'm coming home. If one of them decided to abuse the other 
consistently, you have to question, did you know I was coming back? Didn't you realize I'd be coming back into this situation? Do you not think ahead? And of course they do, and that's why they like each other so much. That's the primary reason, I'm sure. So, it is in the fact that this head slave gives no regard for the return of his master that Jesus says, this is an unbeliever. But that's kind of the easy answer. He goes on now with the final verses, the, the, the last set of verses I read. He goes on to make a more compelling, and I would argue a more interesting comparison, more relevant one perhaps for us today. In verse 47, he goes into a slightly new direction. Now, we're still talking here about leaders. In light of Peter's question, we're still talking about the general issue of how is the standard any different, perhaps, for those in leadership. But now the distinction is between two slaves and this is in light of what the Master has revealed to each of them concerning His will. Two slaves, each being given a different insight from the Master about His will. For the first slave, we're told he knew the Master's will. He knew it well. And in the context of the parable here, we're talking about knowing the Master's instructions. He knew what to do. He had very specific things, like the list I give my kids. No excuses. Here's what you do while I'm gone. He knew the Master's will. But for whatever reason... That slave chose to ignore those instructions and therefore he wasn't ready when the master returned. And what does it say will happen to this slave? Cast out with unbelievers? No. They'll receive discipline. In the context of the church, we're talking about God disciplining his children. It's important, I think, if you take a moment with me just to note the difference between this slave and the previous one. What did the previous one do wrong? Previous one beat the other slaves. Previous one got drunk. We're saying, in other words, complete disregard for responsibility. Nothing about what that person did in that role was right. In fact, they took full advantage of it to their own desires. This slave, this new one we're reading about now, he just neglected his work. Just lazy, unattentive, didn't really try very hard. The first slave was an unbeliever. He was judged accordingly. The second slave, we're told, is simply disciplined. What is the discipline, though? Well, it could take two forms. The same form we experience today, right? Sin in this world brings consequences. No different for this person, whoever it would be. But I would also argue they're losing things in eternity. You know, like Paul talks about those who have been building on hay and straw. They will make their way into the kingdom, but as through fire with nothing to show for it. That, I would argue, is a picture of what you're seeing done here in the, in the context of leadership. Why do you think it is that James says those who would desire to teach, teach ought not want it, you know, not rush to that desire too quickly? They ought to be you know, extra careful, extra sure that that's what they want to go do before they do it. I think it's because they're being raised to a higher standard of expectation. To take on a role like this, and, I, and I'm not saying I'm worthy of it necessarily, but by definition, to be in a role like this means that the standard's been raised for me. And if I don't meet a higher standard, I stand to lose considerably on that basis. Though it should not be reason not to seek what God, is, God has for us, it means to be super serious about it. But most interesting of all, Jesus says, there may also be leaders who are less informed of the Master's will. Isn't that interesting? They will know less than others about what it is God expects out of them. And for those who might act exactly like the first slave, the first slave who knew his will and didn't do it? What happened to that first slave who knew the will and didn't do it? They were beaten. They, were, they were, received many lashes. This second slave, we're told, has done deeds worthy of a flogging. 
So in other words, they did the same deeds. One did them and got flogged. This one did deeds worthy of a flogging. So we're talking about doing the same things. But because of the difference in their insight, as God gives them that insight, one receives a lot of strokes. The other one, what does it say? None? No. It says few. There is still discipline, but the point is that there can be a measure of discipline commensurate with what you know God wants of you. What I like about this is it reflects the fact that God's justice, even to those who are believers, is measured out according to what He has given us to do and what He has asked us to do, on what His expectations of us are. So while there are some who would come to faith on their deathbed, or some who would come to faith and never be given insight into how to use their gifting, it does not excuse them. There is still, in the case of this parable, flogging, but their relative resp- the God's relative response is different, which reflects His true mercy and justice. So he sums up, Jesus sums up the difference between these two disappointing leaders by saying, of everyone who is given much, much is expected. And I like this statement because with it he transitions back to speaking to the crowd. So if you've been sitting there thinking, well, this is all nice and interesting, but I'm not a leader, so exactly how does this apply to me, Steve? Well, he gives that to you here at the end. He speaks to the crowd and he ties it together. He says, for leaders, the more insight one has, the more that you've been given. And therefore, the more skill, the more knowledge, the more responsibility, and therefore, the more will be expected. That's true for leaders. But for everyone else, the principle is true too. Jesus said in that summing up phrase, for everyone whom much is given, more will be expected. Everyone, not just leaders. If you've been given more, if we've been given more in the body of Christ, and by that I mean more opportunity, or a greater exposure to and knowledge of Scripture, or if we've been given a lot of wealth, or if we've been given a lot of people who depend on us for care, whatever it is we've been given that constitutes opportunity, that constitutes responsibility, what is it we've been given? And are we measuring up to it? And here's what I think more means, more in terms of expectation. What does it mean to be expected to do more? It means more service. It means more commitment. It means more sacrifice. It means more impact for the kingdom. It means more vision. It means more urgency. It means more energy. It means more selflessness. It means more seriousness. It means more of whatever God demands of us to reach the lost and disciple the saved. That's what more means. So, if we have been given more in our own walk or in this group as a collective body, then it's incumbent upon us to understand that that more we've been given requires more on our part in response. Now, what are we doing? My personal observation, for what it's worth, is we're doing exactly what the other million plus people in this city and most every other city is doing in their own body. We're coming to church and we're going home. And we are tithing and we're leaving it for someone else to figure out what to do with the money. And we're telling other people we go to church and we don't bother to invite them to come with us. And I'm not speaking so much for each person. I don't know what we all do in our own time, but I will tell you this, that the fruits would be evident. If God has called this body to persist, and you know, and we've all talked already, this is an issue on our minds right now. We are as a body questioning whether we are to last. I am anyway. And one of the reasons that that question is coming to my mind is, for three years of effort, what have we achieved other than a pattern that conforms to the world in every respect? If that's all we can do, there are a thousand churches in the city. Let's go join one of them. But if what we're doing is meant to be different, 
If it's because God has given us something he hasn't given the rest of the city and therefore more is expected of us from it as a result of it, are we living up to that? Because if we're not, then the time and the investment that I have been making, that other leaders in this church have been making for a long time, is uh, an investment that will not last. It will be used elsewhere. We will go and put that work in, put that effort to work elsewhere. Because the time is short. I'm convinced of that. I believe the signs are here. And I believe that tomorrow or the next day or the next day will be his return. And I don't want to waste that time. And I look for others who would not want to waste it with me. Who would have the same desire and the same hope. I believe the hearts in this group are fine. I believe the people in this group are good. I just don't know if God has invited you to do the same thing he's invited me to do. And I can only know that by what you do. Not just by what you say. This group is a group that should act as a church, not a Bible study. And the fundamental difference between a Bible study and a church is everything that takes place outside of the hour you spend in the Bible with me here. I've been called to pastor, I believe, and I've been called to lead. I've not been called to lead Bible studies indefinitely. If you're with me, then I would pray we find ways to work to a better solution. If you see differently, then I will take that as a sign from God and we will go a different path. I ask you would pray with me on that and you would help me make that decision. But I, I believe the time for decision has come. I do not believe an extended discussion is healthy for me or for the group. So I need your help. I need to know what you think God has called you to do. And by collectively expressing that call, we'll know what the body is to do. I believe God has called me to bring the word of God to as many as he will offer the opportunity to hear it. That's why I have a website. That's why I go to other churches and teach. That's why I write newsletters once in a while. That's why I do this. It's not so that we have a church we feel comfortable in and don't have to go finding something else to go do. That's serving ourselves. That's not serving God. If the lecture was um, inappropriate, I apologize. If it is God's will, though, that you hear the words, then I trust he'll do with it what he wants. Let's go to prayer as we finish our study. Father, may your word ring true, not just in our ears, Father, but in this city. May our work, Father, be pleasing to you. May it be with a commitment that understands the urgency of our day. May it be, Father, with a desire that does not rest on our own hopes and our own needs and merely on what it is we'd like to accumulate. But, Father, may it rest solely and, and completely on your will and your desire and on the importance of building your kingdom. Nothing we do, Father, in our own will will last. Nothing we do by our own desires is of value to you. All we build, Father, that would last will be according to the things you've given us to do. And, Father, I do believe that we have been given your will, that we understand it, that you've revealed your will to us. Like that slave, Father, in your parable this morning, because you've revealed your will to us, so much more is expected. That while we stand here this morning in this church, there are many others in other churches this morning in San Antonio and around the world even, who are blindly moving through a a Christian walk that is not appreciative of your will, that does not understand the power of your word, does not make it central in their life. And they await someone, Father, who has the courage and the desire to bring it to them so that they might know the difference. And Father, I believe you've called us to that work. May we be worthy of it. May all the time we spend as a group be uh, sufficient to prepare us for it, Father. 
But Father, if it is Your will that the time we have spent together is a time for building up, for learning, for encouraging, but all, Father, to the purpose of some greater good elsewhere, to be sent out, to do Your work individually in other places, if that's really what this was for, Father, if that's Your will, then I pray You'd make that known too. And give us a heart and the courage to answer that calling every bit as much as we may be willing to answer one to stay together and to work as a group here. For, Father, if we were to stay together against your will, we would no more be earning those riches in heaven than we would if we disbanded, though you wished us to stay together. So we ask for clear, convincing understanding, Father, of your will. And then as we go out from here, Lord, let the joy of the Spirit go with us. Let our sense of urgency be there, Father. Let us know that the times are short. Let us never forget that. But in all that we do, let us be joyful because the times are short. Joyful because your return is near. Joyful because we are soon to be in your presence, one way or another. Let us uh, share that joy with others. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.